Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I am glad you could join us today as we delve into the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. And again, as I've started almost every chapter of Revelation, let me encourage you, go back to chapter one if you haven't started there and uh, then work your way up to chapter seven. Please don't dive in at chapter seven. You're going to lack the, the context and the flow of what's going on and the background we've already covered. So I want to encourage you to do that if you haven't already. Go back, check out the chapters leading up to chapter seven. And I welcome you as part of this study as we seek to grasp scripture, to, to take hold of God's word, to understand it as best we can, and in light of his spirit's guidance and, and what he has revealed in the rest of scripture, and apply it to our hearts and lives as we seek to follow him better. I welcome you, whether you're a believer seeking to know God's word better, or maybe someone who's just interested in the Bible and wanting to know more about it. I hope that if that's the case for you, you're going to find a lot more about it and be introduced to the one who is revealed in God's word. Well, let's turn to the Lord as we prepare to dig into these passages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to this chapter today, Lord, I ask that you would guide us, that you would inspire our thoughts, that you would draw us closer to you as we study your word and what you have to say in it. And Lord, as we are dealing with these these massive ideas and these things that are that are couched in imagery and references that may be foreign to us. Father, give us discernment and wisdom as we try to delve in and understand what is being said. Reveal to us your word for us today as we seek to hear your word in the day it was written. Lord, give us eyes to see ears to hear, and a heart that is sensitive to your spirit. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we prepare to dig into chapter 7, we've got to back up just a little bit. Because in the, well, in the flow of the story, in what's happening here, we are in that, that first scroll and we've already opened, what, six of the seals. We've had the, the horsemen unleashed. We've gotten to the point of the, the day of the Lord happening uh, there at the end of chapter six. And chapter six finishes out with a question. And it is a huge question. It is the people of the earth hiding in caves, praying that God would just drop the mountains on them and kill them so that they'd be hidden from, from this calamity and stuff, but not just from the calamity, hidden from him. Because here's what they say at the end of six, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. You usually don't think wrath and lamb in the same sentence, but there you go. And who's the lamb? Christ. And then verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who 
is able to survive. And I think I emphasized in the study of the last chapter, you know, that is a theme we see over and over again in Scripture when we in our humanity and in our sinfulness are confronted with the holiness of God. When we have that God encounter, be it Isaiah or Moses or whoever else, what becomes painfully obvious to us is our unholiness, our sin. And so the natural response is fear, is to recoil away, is to seek to hide. And so it's perfectly natural that the the question would be asked or the idea posed, you know, hey, the, the day of their wrath has come, that great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to survive? Well, the vision being given to John and what John is pinning for us here doesn't leave us hanging, except that we ended at the end of chapter six on that question, because chapter seven answers the question. But I need to draw your attention to something about chapter seven. And we've seen it previously when the lamb was introduced, when the question was posed, who's worthy to open this scroll with the seven seals? Who in all of heaven, earth, or under the earth can open this? And the answer was this, this conqueror, this Messiah King, the, the Lion of Judah, the Root of Jesse, that's the one. And that's what John hears, and then he looks and sees the Lamb that has been sacrificed, standing there alive. And everybody starts praising the sacrificed Lamb as the one who is able. It's this contrast between what you hear, which presents one image that is generally a militaristic image, uh, this, this power image, and then when you look and see the manifestation of what you're hearing, it's very different. Instead of this conquering king, political leader, ruling messiah, you get... You get a Messiah that sacrifices for us, for our salvation, that was not victorious in battle, but killed willingly as a sacrifice for our sins, but then rose again, showing victory over death. So we don't see the conqueror, but we see the one who has conquered. And it's, it's really different than the mental image that what we hear draws for us. And it's not accidental that you get that contrast. That contrast is there partially because it, it contrasts what Christians understood Jesus to be versus what the Jews had been looking for the Messiah to be, and yet shows that they are one and the same from two very different perspectives of viewing it. But Jesus, the sacrificed lamb who stands alive and is seated on the throne, that Jesus is the root of David, root of Jesse, the descendant of David. That Jesus is the lion of Judah. And so he is those things. But what you see doesn't mesh with what you hear necessarily. We're going to see that motif 
reflected in answering this question of who can stand, who can stand, who can survive this great day of judgment, the day of God's wrath. I, it, from a human perspective, none of us, and yet there is an answer to the question. There is a way to survive, and we will both hear the answer and be shown the answer as we go through chapter seven. So having said all that, to set the stage and intro us into seven, let's dig into. So here we go. Chapter seven begins this way. Then, you know, because we just ended on the question, who is able to survive? Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so that they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea, wait, don't harm the land or sea or the trees until I have placed the seal of God on the forehead of his servants. Now, in ancient times, that is a way you would mark servants. Servants would either um, be given a seal to represent the household that they belong to, give them some uh, authority and acknowledgement as part of the household, or they would be tattooed with a mark showing them to be part of the household. So, uh, there, there is this distinguishing mark that says, you are mine, you are part of my household, you are both my possession and one I care about and extend my protection over. So there's, there's a lot going into that. That's the imagery they would have understood in the first century world. They could look around them in the Greco-Roman world and see it at work I mean, as part of life. So that imagery is being brought in here. To, to frame the discussion and to help them understand what's going on. But it doesn't stop there. You see, we've, we've leased these or, or released these horsemen on the earth, this, this calamity, this devastation. And now we have this representation of the, the angels at the four corners of the earth, which I know the earth's round, it's not square, but it represents the four compass points of the earth. And, and that there's this complete dominance over the earth and that there's this, this torment, this uh, uprooting of nature itself. The natural order and flow of things has been turned on its ear. We've got, you know, the sun darkened and we've got the earth shaking. We've got all of this happening. Go back and read chapter six. And now this angel shows up with the seal of the Lord and says, hold on. Stop. Let me mark the ones. Let me place the seal. The seal of the living God. He says, wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until I have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Now that's, I've given you the context in the first century world. Let's go back several hundred years. In the law of Moses, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, we're told to take the law of God and to place it where? On our foreheads, the sides of our face, on our hands, doorpost, fence post, 
It is to mark us. It is to be what is in the forefront of our mind. It is to to permeate our existence and be that governing thing over our lives, that law of God. Now, we know New Testament application. It is the presence of Christ. It is the indwelling spirit of Christ, the spirit of God given to us as a mark and a seal declaring us as his. It is that token of redemption. Uh, it's, that, it's what Paul talks about in Romans 8. It's, it's there. That is the mark for us. And representation of that being in the forefront of our mind, being that thing that governs us, guides us, has uh, preeminence over our lives is forehead, is on our foreheads right there. Now, that imagery applied to these passages. We're his. We are marked, sealed, pick a term, as his. Now we go on because this is what John is seeing. I saw the four angels and I heard that shout from the other angels saying to the other four to hold off, wait, don't harm land, sea, tree, until I have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Verse four, and I heard how many were marked. I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. Now, we're going to have to unpack that because that has caused a lot of difficulty over the years. Different groups have latched onto that. There are even some cults that have latched onto that and claim, oh, there's only 144,000 that will be saved, or there's only, a, you know, heaven's only going to have 144,000 people. In. Um, you've missed it here. In earlier discussions, we talked about how numbers in apocalyptic literature are symbolic. There are numbers that represent incompleteness and numbers that represent completeness. 12 is one of those numbers that is seen as complete. It echoes tribes of Israel, number of disciples, you know, 24 elders. We kind of unpack that a little bit. Here, what you have is two 12s multiplied together. It is 12,000 12 times. And it's this idea of a massive completeness when the number is total. But what he hears as the number is how many are marked with the seal of God, it's 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then we have what is in essence a reflection of an Old Testament military census. Again, king, ruler, conqueror, military census. That's what he's hearing. From Judah. Why is Judah listed first? Because it is the tribe from which Jesus came. From Judah, 12,000. From Reuben, 12,000. From Gad, 12,000. From Asher, 12,000. From Naphtali, 12,000. From Manasseh, 12,000. Wait, Manasseh. That's one of the two tribes that were the descendants of Joseph. 
you'll notice on this list there's another name that's missing. It's been dropped and Manasseh's slipped in there. And it is the tribe of Dan. By the first century New Testament world, Christians Christians saw the tribe of Dan because they were at multiple points in the Old Testament. They were a tribe that sold out to idolatry completely. They are seen as the epitome of evil. And so in the New Testament, Christians, if they reference Dan at all, it is a, a reference to, to being evil. Uh, and that's it. I, and they base that, you know, we see it in Judges 18. We see it in 1 Kings 12, the, the sin of, of the tribe of Dan in turning to idolatry. So Dan is not even listed on this list. It would have been shocking to New Testament Christians to see Dan on this list. But going on, uh, from Simeon, would you like to guess? It's 12,000. Uh, from Levi, 12,000. From Issachar, 12,000. From Zebulun, 12,000. From Joseph, 12,000. From Benjamin, 12,000. So that's what he's heard, a military census of the tribes. And that there's 12,000, a complete number from each tribe that all together make a complete number, 144,000. And that's out in apocalyptic literature. That's how it would have been seen from Jewish understanding of numbers. That's how it would have been seen. So I want to caution you against, and I believe that the Bible is literally true where it speaks literally, but it is not speaking literally here or doesn't seem to be in the context of the genre of the literature or fitting with the rest of scripture, frankly, or the rest of this chapter. It is symbolic in the number. Now we change gears a little bit because we finished what he heard. And we're going to see what's next. Verse nine. After this, I saw. So now we've had that change. I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. Now in nine, that was four, now in nine, after this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count. So it's not 144,000. It is a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God, who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Now, a great crowd, a vast crowd, too great to count. That has intentional and specific echoes of God's promise to Abraham that there would be his descendants. They'd be like stars in the sky or grains of sand on the beach. And God's promise that he would call people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And here we see that standing in front of God. So, he hears that those that are marked with that seal, sealing them, marking their forehead as belonging to God, the redeemed. 
he hears that, and it's a military census of the tribes of Israel. When he sees it, it's people not just from Israel, but from every nation, tribe, people, and language, all standing before the throne, wearing white robes, waving the palm branches, and praising God. Salvation comes from God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Christians understood in the first century world that they were, if you will, the the, the new Israel. They were, well, not really new Israel. They had been uh, grafted in. They were they were part of the chosen. They were descendants of Abraham. And so as part of that understanding, they this the contrast of hearing the census and then him seeing the great crowd that included them, because most of the people receiving this letter were no longer converts out of Judaism, but they were Gentiles that were coming to faith. Now, there were still converts out of Judaism, but the majority were Gentiles coming to faith. And now they're saying, oh, I'm part of this. I really am part of the redeemed. Remember the seven churches that these letters are being written to. The seven churches of Asia and the different persecutions and struggles that were going on in the church. Think of how encouraging this would be to them. That reminder, you belong to him. And he will stop everything to say, wait a minute. Let's be sure Markham is mine. Uh, it's a it's a big deal. It's a huge thing in the life of the church and in the lives of the believers. And so they're singing out to God, declaring that salvation comes from him. Again, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and they worshiped God. They sang, Amen, means truly, or we declare this to be true, truly, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. So we see this, this doxology, this, this stopping of everything to praise God in that vision that John is given. Now he's heard one thing and now he's seen what it actually looks like. Who is this, this uh, army that is censused? if you will, in what he heard? Well, it's not 12,000 from every tribe in Israel. It is the redeemed from every tribe, nation, people, and language. And how do they become that? They become that because salvation is from the Lord and from, or from God and from Jesus, the Lamb that are on the throne. 
that's where it comes from. That's the root of hope. That is the root of salvation. That is the root of our identity in Christ, that we are his. And it's a contrast to the thing that is heard. And yet it's made clear in scripture that what he's talking about, again, isn't the military census any more than back with the question of who's worthy to open the scroll was a question about a conquering Messiah, ruler, king, military, political leader, but instead was about a suffering servant, the Lamb of God, atoning for the sins of the world sacrificing because of love for us and rising again, showing victory has been won. So that's what's going on. That's that, that contrast and that imagery. And now we're going to get a little further into it with verse 13. And there's a question from one of the elders. So as 13 picks up, it says, Then one of the 24 elders asked me, Who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? I said to him, now this is John talking, I said to him, Sir, you're the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation, or literally it would translate, came out of the great suffering. Um, those that died during would be the reference for the came out of. Um, But these are the ones who died in the great tribulation of the great suffering. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. Verse 15. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. Now, not, not literal temple, but celestial temple, the, 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 the throne room of God. That's what the temple represents, and that's what we're given this glimpse into. That's where this whole episode is playing itself out. So they've been washed, their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb and have been made white. Their sins have been forgiven. They've been made clean, pure before God. How? Is it just that they went through the great tribulation? No, it's that they were his and they faced the suffering. Now, when we say great tribulation here, um, my translation has that all in lowercase. Uh, We like to think, oh, there's the tribulation. And depending on your end times view, you're going to latch onto that term. Again, as I've shared with you, my view, it, yeah, I'm not going for the seven years and, and all that jazz. This is the tribulation that those that follow Christ face in the world. This is the suffering that is going on in the seven churches of Asia Minor and by extension, the rest of the churches during that time. It is that oppression by Rome and that ostracization by the Jews and by the local culture it is it is the suffering that they are facing because they stand with Christ 
instead of with the world. In a day and age where they are held at sword point and given the option of proclaiming Caesar as God or Christ as God. Caesar is Lord or Christ is Lord. And they can declare one and life becomes a lot easier. Or they can declare the other and life becomes, shall we describe it as just shorter on this earth? Because they would be put to the sword or they would be beaten and all of their possessions confiscated or they would be thrown into the arena for entertainment as they die in gruesome ways. That's the reality they lived in. So we can think the great tribulation or going through great suffering as being some eschatological event, but understand it was daily life for the Christians that this was written to. And for a lot of Christians around the world today, it's daily life. There are many places in this world where standing up and proclaiming the name of Christ openly will get you killed. Fortunately, that is not where I am right now. And I can do this. But there are places in the world where doing this will cost you just about, if not everything you have. We forget that. This is given as encouragement that the Lord has won. He sits on the throne and we are his. And no matter what we go through or what we face, we're his. Cleansed by his blood, made righteous to stand before the throne by his grace, his mercy, his blood, his work. Verse 15 again, that is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. Now that's imagery from desert dwellers, from from those from desert regions of the Middle East, that a good shepherd would keep his flock from being scorched in the sun, would lead them to good water to drink and food to eat, would provide for them. That's the shepherd's job. So here he is describing a divine shepherd taking care of his flock. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun for the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So the focus is very clearly not where you have been, not what you have to go through. The focus is where you are going and who you belong to, or is it whom you belong to? It's the fact that you belong to him, that you are marked, sealed as belonging to God. Again, the angels saying, hold up, 
for those of you that are causing all this calamity, the angels that are in charge of that, hold off. And he goes about with the seal, marking those. And it's not 144,000, but it is the complete number of those God is redeeming. And it is a countless number, literally. As John declares, it was a vast crowd, too great to count. And it was from every nation, tribe, people, and language. I am so thankful for the truth of that verse because it gives me the privilege of standing before God as one of his redeemed made clean to stand before God what an awesome blessing I hope you can say the same thing that you look for that day where you can stand before the Lord, made clean by Him, declared belonging to Him, marked as His. But if you don't have that standing with God, you need to understand that God has given you an invitation to enter into that kind of relationship with him. That it is placing our faith in Jesus as Savior because our sin has condemned us, separated us from God, made us objects of his wrath that we're talking about the end of chapter 6. But the redeeming message, the gospel message is this, that God has done everything necessary to take our sins and pay for them. That is the atoning work of Christ on the cross. The Bible tells us this over in Romans. It says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ the Lamb died, paying the price for our sins. When we were still sinners, when we were not following God, seeking after God, when we were living in our sins, separated from God, bound for hell, Christ, because he loved us, paid the price for our sin so that we don't have to. How do we receive that forgiveness? How do we have that price paid on our behalf, applied to our sin? We turn to Him. We turn to Him as our Redeemer and Savior. We turn to Christ, admitting that we're sinners, asking for His forgiveness, committing to follow Him as our Lord. We become one of those ones who receives that seal marking us as belonging to Him. One of those ones who knows that when we stand before God, we will stand with clean white robes that have been washed clean of all the filth we got on them by the blood of Christ. By God's work, we're made clean to stand before him. And we can praise him as the one who brings salvation, as that good shepherd. And we can experience what it is to have God lead us to the springs of life-giving water, and that God will wipe every tear 
from our eyes. It is the promise of Scripture. It is the reality of our existence that we were made for relationship with God. And we broke the relationship. The rest of Scripture is about God restoring that relationship, providing the way for that restoration to happen. What we're reading about in the book of Revelation is the culmination of that restoration and the reassurance and the the restating of the promises of our standing before God based on His work of restoring the relationship we broke when we trust in Him. He changes everything. Do you trust in Him? You've got to struggle with that question. Thank you for joining me today. As we dig through these verses, we're going to pick up with, um, well, we'll get there. We've answered the question. Um, There's some more exciting stuff that's going to take place in chapter 8. And it builds on through the 11th chapter with a, another set of images. And we'll look at how they all fit together and play out. But we finished, as, as I've said previously, I see this as being kind of three different parallels, three different uh, statements on the period between Jesus's resurrection and his return. And we've now covered one of those historical sequences from one perspective Now we're going to be in 8 through 11 looking at another perspective on that window of time is my understanding of the text and and how it fits together. So join me next week. We will dig in and I appreciate you being part of this. Let's turn to the Lord and express our thanks to him. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word, but even more so, we thank you for the word, for Jesus the Christ. God, that you came and dwelt among us, showing us who you are. That in your love for us, you died a sinless sacrifice, willing so that our sin could be paid for. Because, Lord, the cost was too high for us. But you stepped in, you paid the price. And you invite us to turn to you, to receive forgiveness, our sins wiped away, and to be declared yours, no matter where we come from, no matter our background or our language or anything else, but that we have placed our faith in you. Lord, we thank you for that awesome gift. We thank you for the gift of your word and the ability to gather and study it, seeking to hear your voice. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.